Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. At what point have our kids lost their school year and how is this lost time going to be made up? We'll talk to an education expert warning about the COVID slide and the damage these disruptions are causing. Can we make a vaccine here? Yes says a vaccine maker here in Canada. And he says the Trudeau government should have just made the right investments. We might not be waiting. And the Iranian community here warning of explosive growth in money laundering that's fueling drugs, terror, and the Iranian regime. Why aren't Canadian officials doing anything to stop this? Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? Today, we honor the memories of the victims and survivors of the Holocaust. We pledge to tell their stories so that the horrors of the Holocaust could never happen again. We have formally adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism and appointed the Honorable Erwin Kotler to lead Canada's efforts to promote Holocaust remembrance and combat anti-Semitism abroad. We will always stand with the Jewish community and fight anti-Semitism wherever and whenever it occurs. Alex Pearson with you on this January 27th. Oops, sorry about that there. And yes, today marking the 76th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. This is the day 7,000 prisoners were liberated. And a day normally where we would see and hear from survivors. Not many of those are left in the world right now. And we would honor them, um, remember them. And of course, they would share their horror with the world. You know, they'd go to Auschwitz to talk to people there or go to kids' classrooms around the world. And this year, of course, with covid that can't happen. And it sparked a real fear in the Jewish community that this pandemic is going to really impact and silence the message moving forward. And it's important that the message continues to move forward. And um, right now, actually, it's pretty quiet in my house because my husband is now sitting with our son, teaching him about this day. And it's really the first time we felt that he's old enough to learn about some of the horrors of our past. But certainly with the rise of neo-Nazism, far-right hate, um, and certainly when anti-Semitism and, and hate crimes against Jews are at record highs, uh, it has to be confronted. He will have to confront this certainly in his life. And it's very clear to me that we need more education in this area. We also need more condemnation of the hate that we uh, also give a pass to, whether it's from the far-right. But there's also groups out there like Al-Quds who go to Toronto streets and call for the death of Jews. That gets ignored. Or all the BDS crap that has been allowed to take hold on university campuses. All that stuff is anti-Semitism. So you can't be against anti-Semitism if you're turning a blind eye to that. And too many officials do, including the Trudeau government, which has been rightly condemned in the last few months for uh, its recent UN voting record where we've seen uh, the Liberal government uh, favor a number of anti-Israel motions, which is a departure from, from past votes. So talk is cheap, and let's see some walk to it. But this is the day of uh, remembrance. But let's talk about the politics being played with this pandemic. And, and if you wonder why there's such a growing distrust and a divide over, over COVID-19, whether it's the anti-maskers, the anti-lockdown protesters, it's because we keep finding out that some of the, quote, experts making the decisions have their own agenda. 
So you've been listening and hearing about Dr. Fisman. I don't know this guy. I know what he does on Twitter, but that's about it. But he's an epidemiologist who's got a prominent voice on Premier Ford's science table. So he advises on lockdown measures and keeping schools closed and things like that. And those are two policies he very obviously favors. Just go to his Twitter account. And the Toronto Sun reveals that this doctor has been paid by the Elementary Teachers Federation for the past five months, giving them his expertise in advocating for school closures and keeping class size smaller. I mean, go to the Twitter account and it makes pretty clear that he's got a real disdain for the premier and his handling of COVID-19. And he's not at all sorry about this. And as he states after the Toronto Sun article came out, he's not going anywhere. And it's not that, you know, the doctor can't have his opinions. What should get him shut the, you know, shown the front door and already should have happened is that he is a prominent doctor who is supposed to give the premier objective scientific advice. And he's not. He's being paid a lot of money to help the union argue against school reopenings and for smaller classes. And for five months, he's been paid to give that advice to the union. And the union uses his name and his expertise to then push their agenda. And if Fisman was doing nothing wrong, then why not put that out there very publicly? Because it also turns out he also does advisory work for the group EcoJustice and the Ontario Nurses Association, another union group that has been highly critical of Premier Ford. So the guy is political. And if the good doctor had registered to lobby, there'd be no story. But he didn't. He only disclosed the conflict when the news media came calling. He admits to Anthony Fury in a statement that he did not properly disclose his work with the science table five months ago. And now there's documentation that actually literally shows that Fisman changed his conflict of interest disclosure on January 26th. That's yesterday. The same day Anthony Fury called him to get a comment. That is not just a matter of good timing. That appears to be a blatant attempt to get ahead of a scandal of the doctor's own making. Now, some are characterizing this as a witch hunt. You know, that the doctor is being centered out because of his obvious disdain for Ford and his handling or mishandling of COVID. Frankly, I don't care what his opinion is. He's free to express that opinion on his own time. And there's plenty to criticize. Okay, that's fine. For me, this is about transparency. This is about an advisor to the Ford government also getting paid by a competing interest. How can we trust these experts if they are seen to have their own agenda? And the question I have now is, who else is doing it? And if you are one of those who sees this as a witch hunt, then you have to ask yourself, how would you feel if we found out that someone at the same science table is a paid shill for big box stores? Would that be okay? No. A lobbyist is a lobbyist is a lobbyist, and they're going to lobby. And to do that, they have to declare that. I mean, I have lots of opinions. You know my politics. But do you think my bosses would be okay if I had a side gig where, let's say, I was consulting with businesses and then giving them free airtime on my show without telling you or, or my boss of the relationship? No. And I'm not doing it. I have never done it. But if I did do it, then I'd be rightfully fired. And Fisman said he offered his resignation to the science table, and it was rejected. But how on earth can he stay and, and keep any credibility? And how are we to trust the experts if there appears to be a hidden agenda playing out behind the scenes? 
Because remember, there needs only to be the appearance of a conflict of interest for there to be one, which leaves a lot of us wondering who else is pushing that agenda. Is there someone shilling for the big box stores? I mean, if so, you might want to declare that now. I'd love to know. Because the Premier's office, they're deeply concerned about the matter. Well, they should be. You know, Doug Ford tells us all the time that he has to listen to the experts. Well, after this, how do we not question these decisions or that advice? If there are people at that science table driving their own agenda and profiting from it. This is not about not being allowed to criticize the premier. There is so much to criticize. Have at her. This is about people in a position of power using a health crisis for gain. And it's wrong. And today the finance minister, Christian Freeland, she went against her BFF Ford. And she tweeted out her support for uh, Dr. Fisman. Freeland actually got the hashtag thank you David Fisman trending. And I was at, sh- at first I was like, what? And then I remembered, oh yeah, ethics are not exactly a strong point for her government. So maybe she doesn't see the problem here. But that is why it is an issue. We're going to talk to Anthony Fury at the 750 mark because he's got more on this story. But again, people don't trust the advice they're getting if they think there's something stinky about it, people will stop buying in. And we've just seen too much of this during this uh, situation. Busy show coming up for you. I mean, if you really want to be outraged, Prime Minister's got to change his talking points on vaccines. You know, we know now and we're learning more about this, that he lost the vaccine deal with China, um, you know, because of China last May. He made this deal with Kinsino and then China stepped in and crushed it and you know, played the games that we should have expected China to play, but then he kept it hidden and waited months, months to order vaccine, which is why we are back of the line. And now provinces are uh, starting to report that they have run dry. Ontario's not there yet, but uh, Saskatchewan has no more. And they have no clue when the next deliveries are coming. And we could have avoided this. Yeah, we certainly could have. There is a Canadian solution. We're going to actually talk to a man behind that Canadian made vaccine solution at the uh, nine o'clock hour. So this notion that we can't and couldn't have done it here. Yes, we could. We still can. But it would require Canada and these governments to change their attitude about innovating, investing and making Canada competitive and getting out of this attitude and and, uh, belief that we have to rely on everyone else. I mean, have we not learned anything in this pandemic? We cannot continually rely on others to do what we already can. So we will talk about that. And then um, The Economist. The Economist, yes. They're now reporting. So if you thought you were getting your vaccine by September, I I said that would not happen. I said that my husband actually said, when do you actually really think we're going to get vaccinated? And I said, no time soon. September? Now we read by The uh, Economist. They put all the countries in order of who's going to get what. And they have all the wealthy countries like the United States, United Kingdom, all the, they're going to be done by June, latest. Canada, mid-2022. Not September, 2021. Mid-2022. We're not even with the wealthy nations. That's how bad this is. All right, great to have you here on this Wednesday. And um, at what point... Have our kids lost the school year? And when we add up the time our kids have been either out of school or learning online, you've got to start asking, how are we going to actually make up for all this lost time? 
kids stopped going to school properly really last March. And they got some online stuff in. It was barely an education. I mean, my son's grade two teacher told me back in November that she's having to reteach large portions of his last grade. And I suspect that's happening for a lot of parents and kids in all grades. And now they've been online for a month in January. And they're probably going to be off for a lot more. But it's not the kind of education that we're paying for and what the kids need. And there's no end in sight. So we've got to figure out, you know, how much time's been lost, how's it going to be made up, and how on earth are kids going to be moving into next grades given how much time they have lost in the con- the classroom. I don't understand why this conversation is not happening. Paul Bennett is director of Schoolhouse Institute, author of The State of the System, a reality check on Canada's schools, and that book is available in bookstores right now. He joins us now. Good to have you, Paul. Good to be back with you, Alex. There's a term for this that you said to me called the COVID slide. What is that? Well, the virus has got the upper hand, as you know, and uh, school has been out since um, March of 2020 on many occasions. And um, what happens is students are falling further and further behind through all the disruptions and because the alternative to regular in-person teaching is far from satisfactory, and there are many problems. So the school system's in crisis. It's been shaken, and uh, the alternatives to regular in-person learning are insufficient for students to maintain certain levels of achievement, and they have fallen dramatically behind, particularly in certain subjects. You have built your whole career. You've done decades in education um, and in Ontario. So you know this um, area, uh, you know, very, very well. When you look at the amount of time that kids have been disrupted from the classroom, is there any data to suggest how much time has been lost? It's very difficult to find the data here in Canada, but fortunately there's quite a bit of research that's come out, and much of it I've been poring over And I can give you two or three examples. Um, In December 2020, a McKinsey and Company survey in the United States uh, put the potential learning loss at the end of uh, June 2021 at significant. Just to give you an example, they forecast that, um, say, in mathematics, students uh, are on average likely to lose up to five to nine months of learning. And among black students, the learning loss in mathematics averages about six months to a year. In mm-hmm. Alberta, there's a study on reading, uh, which is, is produced by Professor George Giorgio, and that looked mm-hmm. at uh, young readers. And he found that they're lagging behind in the learning curve in the wake of the pandemic. And it's very, very significant. He's put it at months and months and months. They're just not developing reading and those are two of the most fundamental issues. Um, one of the things we've learned is that there's next to no research in Canada, with the exception of George Giorgio, uh, going into this because so many of those in faculties of education and research institutes here are not taking seriously the problem of learning loss. You know, before COVID hit, reading and math for grade three and six were already showing disastrous results. Kids simply in Ontario are not passing, not not to the levels they should be. What is your biggest concern and what do you think the most serious thing is facing kids and what parents should be concerned about? We already had a challenge with social promotion. 
and that is student achievement and promotion from grade to grade were not really connected and achievement levels were out of sync with what students were getting on report cards and we had underperformance and uh, plateauing of performance on national and international tests. This was before the great catharsis of the pandemic. We have nothing short of a disaster going on. Uh, The pandemic generation is going to suffer. And I think even those who are staunch defenders of the existing system, they've come to recognize that this is not normal times, and it's going to take a whole lot more effort and some targeted programs to turn it around. I'll just give you an example of how difficult this is, though. Let's be sympathetic to those that are making the decisions. There is no consensus among the medical community. In fact, there's differences of opinion in clinical science and clinical medicine between the various people of specialties. By this week, we just had a report from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, which said that it was safe to open schools when there were high incidents of community transmission because schools were safer than the communities of which they were a part. What you've got in Ontario in the greater Toronto area is very similar to what is the situation in many American cities, and that is a shaken school system and a massive dissent from what's going on as parents are assuming more and more the responsibilities of educating their own children. Yeah, and then you have to add in the politics of the unions, which um, we have gone out of their way to try and fight uh, school reopenings. And so we don't know when we're going to get open. The concern I have, and I have many um, at this point, Paul, is that there's no conversation at all happening as to how we're going to get kids back up to speed. Like, when are we having the conversation? Are we canceling March break, summer break? I mean, I can't think that in good conscience we can continually move kids into upper grades if they haven't been given the basic fundamentals of the grade that they're in. You are absolutely right. I shouldn't mention CBC, but I will. CBC had one program on this. It was called the COVID Slides Impact on Kids Learning back in November 2020. And I can tell you it was the most disappointing show I've ever listened to. It identified the problem of learning loss and then interviewed a series of people in the system who gave standard responses. They dismissed learning loss and instead focused on students suffering anxieties, the value of mindfulness, and reducing stress through broader and softer student assessments. In other words, Mm -hmm, pass mm -hmm. them along. It'll take care of itself. So I hate to say this, and your listeners probably know this, the answer too often in education is move them along and conceal the extent to which they're falling behind. Well, we've seen that for the last few years with kids not being failed or, you know, teachers not allowed to be um, handing out zeros or they get condemned. Um, and if that's the route they're taking, then they be, they better be honest with kid, uh, kids and the parents because this is not the education we're paying for. We're trying to prepare kids for the world. And what I'm hearing from you is not only are they not going to be prepared for the world, we're not even admitting it. We're just doing it just to keep them going through the system. It's even more extensive than that. You'll find everywhere. Um in whatever school system you're looking at in Canada, that they've just decided that kids are going to find their own levels when this all sorts itself out. Now, we know that that's going to be a lower level of achievement than was the case before. But I'll tell you, there's good news because in the United States, there are 
organizations coming up with toolkits to overcome learning loss. And we do know what works. And it's just a matter of getting educational authorities here in Ontario and broadly across Canada to accept that this is a serious crisis and it needs a focused strategy. Uh, They're not doing enough. It's very diffuse and there's no integrated plan to correct learning loss. But I can tell well, you what we'll have... what's working. I want yeah. me to tell you what's working. Uh, the reports uh, some are good coming news would be good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the reports are coming in. And the best of all possible solutions, and you know this, is to get mm-hmm. kids back in school with a school uh, culture that is attuned to the early warning signs that they're falling behind and has adequate support and resources to help them to catch up. That's the first and best yeah. solution. Failing that, you can go for, these are things that work, high-dose, one-on-one, small-group um, tutoring, uh, which, mm-hmm. is div- which is directly helping kids, not with their study skills, but with mastering the subject content in math and reading that they're missing. And a, a third thing, which I believe... Um, It's probably harder to pull off, but it's proven very successful, is catch-up academies. There are some in the United States, and here's how they work. Parents who are exhausted from Monday to Friday, they choose to offer, uh, put the kids into weekend programs, or they plan during the holiday breaks over Easter, uh, over over the March break and over, over this summer breaks, to offer program, to put them in programs with highly trained teachers for, uh, with double-dose math instruction. That is what works. Double-dose math instruction during periods when they're not in regular school. That is how we think they're going to be able to keep pace and catch up on work they've missed. So forget the summer camp and get them into a school camp. That is the answer. Paul, there's obviously a bigger conversation to be had, and we should be having them more continually, so we will have you on again, and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. Paul Bennett is author of State of the System, A Reality Check on Canada Schools. It is an important book and one you can pick up at your local uh, bookstore. The Prime Minister says he cast the net wide. Well, Providence Therapeutics is a Canadian company that has been part of the COVID-19 vaccine race. They submitted a proposal to the Liberal government in April for a vaccine. They didn't hear back, Mr. Speaker, until August, the same time the government rolled out Pfizer and Moderna, who would not make vaccines in Canada. After months of global hoarding of PPE and supply issues in the first wave of the campaign, Why did the Liberal government abandon the chance to make a vaccine here in Canada? I'm very pleased to highlight that we've actually uh, given $10 million uh, to uh, Providence Therapeutics uh, for them to commence their clinical trials to support Made in Canada solutions as well. Well, that is the Prime Minister. And sadly, Mr. Trudeau, millions just doesn't cut it. You actually need billions to make vaccines. And we get this question a lot. Why can't we produce vaccines here? Well, we can We just don't. And the prime minister has said we can't produce vaccines because we just don't have the facility. Well, there are facilities. There are private companies that can, in fact, produce mRNA vaccines. They just actually need the funding to retool their facilities. They need investment 
And Canada is not good at that when it comes to the pharma industry. And now, as the European Union is threatening to stop vaccine shipments to Canada, we've got a Canadian company that's saying, hey, I over here, we have a made in Canada solution but we can't get it to market because that would require more money. And this is a Toronto-based Providence Therapeutics, which announced on Tuesday it's actually started human clinical trials to test a candidate, an MRA vaccine, that if it worked would be similar to Moderna. But they just didn't get the investment. Brad Sorensen is CEO of Providence Therapeutics. It is good to have you, Brad. Uh, Thank you. Appreciate you uh, allowing me to chat. Well, you know, a lot of people want to chat with you because your company is um, slated to start human trials to test this candidate. Um, some are saying, well, too little, too late. But is this a, an all, is this a viable candidate that could help us out of what we're in, this jam? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How this, long this would... Vaccine, this, this vaccine is comparable to, to anything that the Canadian government is trying to buy right now from, from Moderna or BioNTech. So where where is it now? So it, it has to start human trials. I mean, the Pfizer and the Moderna have already done their human trials. And so I think people just look at that and say, well, they've already got vaccines to market. It's too late for other candidates. But I was just reading an article in The um, Economist, which actually says Canada's not going to be vaccinated by September. They've actually got our schedule in mid-June of 2022 when Canada will be vaccinated, to which I think Canadians would say that is absolutely outrageous and not acceptable. Would Would your vaccine candidate be a solution to this? So our our vaccine won't be available until the beginning of 2022. Um, That's the time it's going to take us to run our clinical trials. So we've now entered the clinic. We are in our phase one. Uh, We expect to be in phase two, three by Mm -hmm. May. And if everything goes well and we work cooperatively with Health Canada, we can have that done by the end of the year. And if if there's a will, we could produce vaccines on spec so that as soon as that emergency approval is 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 reached, we could be in a position to roll out tens of millions of doses to Canadians. Your company um, in the early days asked for $35 million from uh, the federal government. You didn't get that figure, but as the prime minister says, hey, we gave them millions of dollars. Um, but that, that doesn't come close to what we paid for these um, foreign vaccines. I mean, we spent billions upon billions of dollars for other companies to make um, things that I think a lot of Canadians say we should have done it here. The timing matters. Mm-hmm. We asked for the resources back in April. We received the award um, from the NRC for a phase one clinical trial in October. Um, we received our award from NGen. It was press released, I think, two weeks ago. Um, the reason we're, you know, we're being aggressive in raising the alarm is because we don't want to go through that same process for the next round of funding. Um, we need it to be addressed in a more strategic and in a more comprehensive way so that when we, what we start now, we're not receiving, you know, eight months from now. Had the investments been made um, to your company, um, in the appropriate time. And there are other companies, there's a company in Quebec that said, look, we could have produced these vaccines here had they got the licensing rights, but they didn't put the money into our facility to retool it. Instead, they put it into a government operation. Had the Trudeau government put the proper investments in, 
would you have been able to produce a, a locally, um, you know, national vaccine produced here in that time? Yes. Yeah. Back in March, we were two months behind Moderna. Now, Moderna got a billion dollars. Um, so we would not be on the same pace as Moderna. That, that's, I'm, I'm not making that statement. Mm-hmm. But we would be talking about our phase three right now, not our phase one. And we would be, we would be in the process of, okay, sure, maybe there's a delay, you know, from, from Europe or from the, from the U.S., but we would have been in a position that we would have been rolling out vaccines certainly this summer, if not sooner. That has to be awfully frustrating for someone like yourself. Um, if not, if not for every Canadian, um, you know, out there now looking at another year of lockdown measure. I mean, I see it as a very frustrating. You know, I, I, I take some ownership for it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, nobody's dealt with a pandemic before. Okay, um, so am, am I? Am I going to say this is a hundred percent the government's fault? Um, I think mistakes were made and we can correct those mistakes. Um, I myself probably should have been more aggressive in, in carrying this message beyond the bureaucrats Mm -hmm. that I was, that I was involved in. You know, I got, I got plugged into the process and I said, okay, I'm, you know, I'm a good Canadian. I like to follow the rules. And I stuck with the process even when the process wasn't working. And so, so being polite so now, by the rules, so, yeah, it worked against you. So, so now I'm like, okay, I, I've got to recognize what I'm doing wrong and I've got to change. And so I'm changing now and I'm, I'm sharing with anybody that will listen what, what's going on, what our capacity is, and I'm letting that drive the conversation. Most people believe that we can't produce vaccines here, which is not true. It would require um, government investment to make uh, companies in in Quebec and private companies um, be able to do specific vaccines, but it can be done. And and if they had put that money in over the last several months, uh, we'd be having a much different conversation today. With the particular vaccine that you're developing, if the government were to come to you today and say, look, we will give you um, a a large sum of money um, if you can retool your, your, your company to make these vaccines that are currently available would you be able to do that yeah yeah i I mean we we approached you know we've been sponsored by the by the national research council Uh, and you know we've got a point of contact at the national research council he's you know doing a great job i asked that individual i said look i understand that they're they're retrofitting uh, a gmp facility in quebec Um, my understanding is it's it's a little bit delayed but there's nobody currently occupying in that facility. And I said, we would be happy to to do tech transfer, put in equipment, train people, and begin a, a process of our development, what we should call formulation, fill, finish. Um, and then once we have our facility up in Calgary running, we would take things down, move it back to Calgary, and you could use it for whatever you want to use it for um, to expedite the process. And I was told no. And, well, and, and so again, it's now, and maybe there's, I don't know. The problem is, is there's just no comprehensive approach. If, if it's going to be used for something else, fantastic. But if it's not going to be used for something else, why? 
since the threat of the United or the European Union and certainly the United States is now raising its voice in concerns over cutting supply, uh, do you think you might get a phone call? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I actually am a pretty low key person. <laughs> um, I can tell. And and so, yeah, it's 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 a little painful for me <laughs> to go through this personally. But yeah, mm-hmm. the, there's no question we're getting we're getting, you know, provincial governments are reaching out to us. Uh, you know, asking, you know, can they get secure supply, you know, directly, the federal government. This has changed the dialogue. And and hopefully it doesn't just change it for us. Hopefully it changes it for other innovators and, and Canadian companies that, because, you know, I'm not saying we're the only solution. Um, mm-hmm. But we need to have a more concerted effort to to have that capacity built up in Canada. And And I believe that mRNA which is what mm-hmm. we do, has obviously elevated, you know, itself on the world stage. There's only two approved vaccines right now, you know, globally, and they're both mRNA vaccines. 95% is a pretty high bar, and that's that's what we can do. Um, so I believe we should be in the discussion, but do I believe we're the only ones? No. But there should be a discussion about enabling Canadian capacity as opposed to just acquiring and drawing on mm-hmm. worldwide resources. We should be able to contribute worldwide to solving the problem, not making it worse. Well, we did this to ourselves, uh, not competing or being innovative when it comes to pharma and allowing it to uh, basically be done just by the government. If we've learned nothing, Brad, during this pandemic, it is that we must never, ever rely on anybody else. And so I hope your phone rings. I hope you can provide some kind of solution. And I will look forward to that journey. And I appreciate you chatting with us. Thank you so much. Brad Sorensen, you'll probably get to know that name with Providence Therapeutics. Hey, if they're a viable solution, I don't care how much it costs, give them the money and get the production started because this is ridiculous. We cannot rely on everybody else to do things that we know we can do here and do just as well. Boy, we got to start learning these lessons. Good to have you here with us on this Wednesday, a global news investigation revealing that there has been, and we've talked about this before, but there's been an explosive growth in money laundering in this country, but certainly in Toronto at currency exchanges. And apparently this crisis is well known to those in the Iranian community, where these underground currency exchanges are said to be laundering billions of dollars in drug money that's then being used to finance other drug cartels, terror groups, and the Iranian regime. And for years... Activists have actually been trying to get Canadian officials uh, to act, saying that the money's pouring into Canada and is putting a lot of people in danger. But so far, nothing. Sam Cooper, our global news event, global news investigative reporter, also known at Twitter as uh, Scooper Cooper, joins us. And of course, this is your exclusive. And this also ties into another exclusive you had um, with the alleged RCMP mole Cameron Ortez, who is accused of selling RCMP operation plans to transnational criminal networks. And so it's kind of a continuation of that story. But Toronto, I didn't know Toronto was a real um, epicenter for this. Yes, it is. Uh, this this did build on our uh, our international in- investigation into the Ortis case, and what we reported is that uh, he allegedly did sell the RCMP's operational plans to a global kingpin money launderers network, uh, mm-hmm. a man that was laundering money for Hezbollah, the Iranian regime, Mexican drug cartels, Chinese drug cartels, billions of dollars annually 
and very big. As you say, we've reported in Toronto, and it all relates to the. We wanted to dive deeper into this vulnerability in Toronto. People know that international sanctions were placed on Iran. Our investigation shows that uh, Toronto currency ch- exchanges popped up to, to handle underground banking transactions between Iran and Canada through Dubai. And really, uh, it plugs in to this international drug money laundering that also plugs into terror financing. So Iranian mm-hmm. community leaders told us that there have been uh, big suspicions in the community for years. The community knows uh, the people that immigrate very well, and they say we're worried that some of these very wealthy people are connected to the Iranian regime. Somehow they seem to be able to buy their way into Canada when legitimate, hardworking uh, people trying to escape the regime may have a hard time getting into Canada. They're concerned that the community is starting to slant towards that uh, powerful and dirty money. And so oh. they told us, Yes, you're right. There's a lot of unregulated currency exchanges, and they're just scaling up by the year because this underground banking is getting bigger and bigger. And so what kind of regulatory body is there? I mean, if it's being raised, and we know that money laundering, because you've done so many investigative reports on it, I mean, everyone seems to tie money laundering with BC, but it's a Canada-wide cancer. It is wreaking havoc right across this country. But what kind of um, oversight are on these exchanges? Well, Canada's anti-money laundering agency is FinTrack. That's uh, run under the Ministry of Finance, and they they actually have a lot of information. We know that, of course, casinos and banks, uh, many entities, lawyer, uh, not lawyers, <laughs> notaries, uh, have to report mm-hmm. to FinTrack when they get suspicious transactions. But what is occurring, we found, is that these un, un, you know, unknown money services businesses, little corner stores that are running international currency exchanges, are popping up to handle uh, the, the transactions because of sanctions on Iran. And it's, it's very interesting. Gary Clement, a former top-level financial yeah. crimes investigator for the RCMP, said he sees a direct comparison to what's happening on the West Coast where you have all this money coming in because China has strict capital export controls, it's coming in underground. And uh, organized crime has to be part of those transactions. Clement says exact same thing in Toronto as it relates to the Iranian regime, the sanctions, and how organized crime is used to route underground transactions. Uh, of course, not reported to Canadian tax authorities or anti-money laundering authorities. Yeah, and I know that you're covering the inquiry looking into all that money laundering, and some of the findings are simply shocking as to what has been happening and who has been involved. And so that is underway right now. But BC has been warning the rest of the country about this kind of activity. This has clearly been on the radar of the Iranian community raising red flags. My question is, you know, this is not a victimless crime. I mean, those who are trying to afford to buy houses or, um, you know, and can't afford it, you know, when they wonder why they're blocked out of the market, it's because, well, a lot of dirty money bought up a lot of real estate and drove up the prices. So it's not a victimless crime. It also, also, you know, the drugs, um, the sex trafficking, all of that stuff. That's all fueled by dirty money. And there doesn't seem to be any appetite from anyone seriously in government looking at this to stop it. Why? Well, that's true. I'd like to say that that's not only coming from financial crime experts, that's coming from Iranian community business leaders that say uh, that they say Ottawa is turning a blind eye to dirty money and it's it is not victimless. 
uh, the first victim is young families trying to buy a home. There's all yeah. kinds of cash going into Toronto real estate that is dirty money. And uh, beyond that, the, the Iranian community fears that they're being, this money is being used to, to pump up pro-Iranian regime elements and to influence Canadian politicians. So why is nothing being done? Uh, Gary Clement would say uh, this is about, uh, you know, Canada's business and political elite turning a blind eye to dirty money simply because perhaps it's indeed it's boosting the real estate market. It's going into investment funds. Well, yeah, the, the real estate market's the only thing driving the economy. But at the same time, I think it's uh, safe to say that Canada has earned itself now a very bad reputation of just being an easy place to, to clean your cash. It has. And, uh, you know, my reports, if I can take any credit for, for helping to push that truth forward, it's obviously starting to be uh, paid attention to in British Columbia. But as people say, uh, it was very easy to see in Vancouver, those empty mansions, those those empty condo buildings, maybe a yeah. little bit harder to spot in Toronto, just because you do have a, a bigger city, you do have a legitimate economy. But if you look in, you know, certain sectors and neighborhoods, absolutely, uh, people can see that uh, the dirty money is, is boosting prices and uh, CRA, RCMP, where are you? That's what my sources would say. Yeah, well, it, is, it seems you are the only one who's exposing it. And uh, so there's no excuse for no one uh, picking up what you have already put down. Uh, Sam, always appreciate your insight. Just a hell of a continuation of what you report. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. That is Sam Cooper. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you should. He is probably, if not one of, uh, I'd say the best investigative reporter we've got in this country. Follow him at Scooper Cooper. He gets all the goods. You can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.